And as you're turning to Luke 23, uh, I, I usually like to start off with a question, something for you to think about. And so here's, here's my question for you this morning. Uh, have you ever had to argue for your innocence? Have you ever had to argue for your innocence? Have you ever had to, had a situation where you were, uh, someone uh, brought a charge of guilt to you and you had to defend, defend your innocence? I remember one time in high school, uh, I, uh, me and a, and a close buddy of mine, we stole all of the candy out of our guidance counselor's office. And uh, it, it was wrong. It wasn't the right thing to do. But the very first time we did it, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't premeditated. We were just in her office, and we thought it would be funny and kind of goofy. So we, we stole all the candy. We just carried, we'd carry just armloads of candy out of her office, and we'd bring it into the study hall room, and we'd disperse it among all the students. We felt like Robin Hood, just stealing, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. And um, one day... Uh, and this went on for like weeks, like this was happening all semester long. And I still, I don't know why she kept putting more candy in her office. Like she knew it was going to disappear. Uh, but we would do this week after week. And eventually as weeks wore on, one day while my friend and I were sitting in study hall, uh, the principal like buzzed in over the intercom system. And he said, Brett and my, my friend, Come to my office now, please. And everybody in study hall kind of snickered, and they chuckled, and they, they knew. Like, we had been giving them candy for weeks. They knew exactly what was going on. And so we kind of stood up, and we slowly made our way to the principal's office, and we sat down. And our principal asked us the age-old question. The age-old question. Do you boys know why, why I brought you here today? Right? And that's a genius question, by the way. Like, you can get people to confess crimes that you didn't even know they committed with that question. But he asks us, do you boys know, know why I brought you here today? And like shrewd, young, 18-year-old boys, we answered him, no. We have no idea why you would have asked us to come in today. And uh, he, he proceeded to say, you know, I, I don't believe you guys. And I remember we kind of hung our heads, and I'm thinking through in that moment, like, okay, what are my terms of surrender? <laughs> what am I... What am I going to, like, what am I going to say to try and, like, make this sound less bad? What, what reason am I going to come up with having stolen candy for weeks and weeks? And uh, before I could get out, like, like, an answer or a confession, our principal proceeded to ask a really, a, a strange question. He said, where did you put them? And my buddy and I kind of stopped and were, like, pausing for a moment in confusion, like, but wait, what do you mean, where did we put them? It's candy, we ate it. Or we gave it out to everybody else, and they ate it. So we're kind of sitting there confused for a second, and the principal went on. He said, somebody stole everything off the walls in the library, and I know you guys did it. And my friend and I, I'll never forget the way we looked at each other in that moment. It was like pure relief. <laughs> we had been accused of the wrong crime. Like... Like, we were innocent. It was so easy to just tell our principal, like, no. Like, I don't even know how somebody would get away with that. Like, how is that even possible? We haven't been caught to this day. So, <laughs> Principal Zotes, if you're watching, it was me. It was me. 
today in Luke 23, we see Jesus, an innocent man, go to trial for capital punishment, punishment by death, and never, not even once, argue for his innocence. Isaiah 53 is a a book of the Bible. And it was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. But it looked forward. It pointed forward to a time when Jesus would come. And Isaiah 53 verse 7 says this. Speaking of Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter or a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Today, Luke recounts the story, the true story of Jesus' trial before his death. And we see Jesus stand before four different groups of people, and he never demands his innocence. He never argues for it. He never holds up his perfect record of righteousness and says, look, I'm innocent. I'm not guilty. He never tries to protect himself. And today we're going to look at the different people that Jesus stood before in the story. And we're going to see their response to him. And here's the question today that I want to seek or have us ask as I go through this text. I want us to ask this question, why didn't Jesus argue for his innocence? Why didn't Jesus argue for his innocence? Like Jesus could have called down legions of angels to protect him. Jesus could have used his unparalleled authority and mastery of teaching, of speaking, to just stun and silence his accusers, but he didn't. And so we have to ask, why didn't Jesus argue for his innocence? Isaiah 53, 7 became true. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. And leading up to our passage today that we're going to be in, we've seen as we've gone through the, the book of Luke that Jesus has been beaten. He's been on trial before the Jewish religious leaders. They've convicted him of being guilty and now they're taking him. They're bringing him before the, the ruling uh, nation of the time the Romans. And the Jewish people want to bring him to the Roman authorities because they know that only the Romans had the ability to carry out capital punishment. So only the Romans can carry out the death penalty, can actually kill Jesus. And that's their goal. That's the Jewish leader's intention. And so they bring him before the ruling Roman official at the time. His name is Pontius Pilate. And that brings us to our passage. So let's read We're going to read verses 1 through 7 together. It says, Then the whole company of them, so the, the Jewish religious leaders, they arose and they brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man, listen to these accusations, by the way, really interesting. We found this man misleading our nation. Okay, they've never brought that one. They've never accused Jesus of that one before, but now that's, an accusation, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. They've never brought that up before. Actually, Jesus said to pay your taxes to Caesar. And saying that, he himself is Christ, a king. Verse 3. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered him, You have said so. 
Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this, in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And so we see the first person that Jesus stands before in our passage, Pilate. And if you're anything like me when you hear this story, Pilate's a really, really interesting figure, right? Pilate questions Jesus. He asks, think about this. Pilate, within the span of asking Jesus one question, can see that Jesus is innocent. Like, it's so crystal clear to Pilate. So, for Pilate, it should be an easy decision, right? Like, this man is innocent, so let him go free. Set him free. But that's not what we see happen in our passage. Sure, Pilate could set Jesus free. He could let him go. But what gain would that be for Pilate? We see Pilate learns that Jesus is from Galilee which is a region about 70 miles north of the current city that they're in, Jerusalem. And when Pilate discovers this, he sees an opportunity. We see in our passage, Pilate would rather use Jesus as an opportunity to repair a broken political relationship than set him free. Verse 12, later on in the passage, tells us that up until this point, there had been enmity, there had been strife, there had been dissonance between Herod, the guy who ruled over this northern region of Galilee, 70 miles north of Jerusalem, between him and between Pilate. And so Pilate decides to manipulate the situation. And in Pilate's mind, this is a, this is a great opportunity. There's, he can basically kill two birds with one stone in this scenario. So what Pilate seeks to do is he goes, okay, I've got this case of this guy who I know is innocent, but I got this mob of people demanding his death. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get this case off of my back, and I'm going to ask this other guy, Herod, to rule in, to weigh in, to give his verdict on the decision, therefore absolving myself of responsibility. So that's one bird with a stone. The other bird that he tries to kill with the stone is to say, essentially, I'm going to honor Herod by saying, Herod, I know, hey, we haven't had that creative relationship in the past, but I know you're a wise man. I know you have, you have good discernment. And I, so I'm going to send this case of this man, Jesus, to you. I want your input. I want your wisdom. I want you to be the ruling factor, the ruling person to give the verdict in this case. And so for Pilate, this is the best possible case Scenario. He ships Jesus off to Herod, who's visiting down from this area of Galilee, down in Jerusalem, visiting at this point in time. And it's easy to look at this story and kind of despise Pilate, right? Like, dude, how could you do this to an innocent man? Not just an innocent man, but a perfect man, Jesus. Pilate should be bowing down in worship to him, not using him for his own selfish ends. But friends, how often have we, like Pilate, sought to pursue our own gain rather than seek God's will in our lives? How often have we looked to manipulate and control the circumstances and the events in our lives for our own selfish ends rather than seeking out God and his will? Friends, the truth is, 
We are Pilate. We're guilty of not only trying to manipulate and control the circumstances and the scenarios in our life, we're guilty of trying to manipulate and control God himself. And this is religion. See, religion seeks to put God under our control. Religion seeks to put God in our debt. Like, God, if I do this, this, and this, then you owe me. Religion says if I do enough, if I obey well enough, if I maintain enough control over my situation, then God will give me what I want or produce for me what I want. But friends, God isn't our debtor. Well, God will never owe us a single thing, ever. God is the one who pays our debt. And the only appropriate response is to bow down and surrender. And so isn't it crazy that Jesus allows Pilate to use him? Like, by the way, Jesus isn't a helpless victim in the story. Think about this. Pilate, or excuse me, Jesus formed and made Pilate in his mother's womb. Like, Jesus exists before time began. Jesus saw the Roman, the Roman government come into being. He knew the exact day that the Roman government would fall. So why doesn't Jesus just speak up? Why didn't Jesus argue for his innocence? Isaiah 53, 7 It became true. It says, he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. All right, let's continue on. We're going to read verses 8 through 12. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then, arraying him in in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. And so we see the second figure in our story that Jesus stands before, Herod, the mocker. Like I mentioned earlier, Herod was a ruler over an uh, an area that included the area of Galilee, which is about 70 miles north of where our, our story currently takes place in Jerusalem. And he's visiting Jerusalem at this point in time. Verse 8. If you look at it, it says that Herod is very happy. He's glad. He's elated to have Jesus come to him. And no doubt, as ruler over this area of Galilee where Jesus is from, I mean, Herod would have heard the stories, right? There's no Instagram back then. There's no Snapchat. There's no TikTok or whatever y'all are doing nowadays. There's just word of mouth. And Herod would have heard the stories about this guy, Jesus, who had turned water into wine, who had multiplied the fishes and the loaves, who had cast out demons and and healed the sick and the lame. And Herod, 
He's pumped. Herod's ready to catch a show. Herod is hoping Jesus will perform a sign. In other words, Herod is hoping that Jesus will perform a quick circus act. Perform one of those miracles that I've heard so much about. But ultimately, Herod is severely disappointed. Not only will Jesus not perform a miracle, Jesus won't even open his mouth. Jesus won't even answer any of his questions. We don't even know. It seems like from the story, Herod doesn't even get to hear the sound of Jesus' voice. And when Jesus doesn't show up in the way that Herod wants or do the things that Herod wants him to do, Herod begins to mock him. And we can picture the scenario play out. In Herod's mind, like it seems like Jesus is in dire straits. I mean, the dude has gotten beat up probably hours earlier. His face is probably black and blue. And in Herod's mind, Jesus, he's, he's on trial for capital punishment, punishment by death. And literally, in Herod's mind, Jesus' life hangs in the balance based on Herod's verdict in the case. But Jesus doesn't do anything to defend his innocence. He doesn't even open his mouth, and Herod begins to treat him with contempt and mock him. Obviously, Herod thinks this guy isn't all he's cracked up to be. Maybe these stories I've heard are just overblown, or maybe they're just made-up lies. And later in our passage, in verse 15, we see that Herod's verdict on Jesus is made clear. Herod believes that Jesus is innocent. But as a cruel joke, maybe in light of of Jesus' failure to live up to the hype, he clothes Jesus in splendid clothing. I don't I don't know what splendid would be like in modern day terms, but probably in, in uh, the clothing that like a ruler or a king would wear. It's, it's a sick joke to, to mock Jesus. And isn't it easy to read this story and just think to ourselves like, Herod, dude, what are you thinking? Like, how could you mock Jesus? You know this man is innocent. You've heard the stories about him. What grounds do you have to treat him with contempt? Like you should be bowing down in worship. But friends, how often do we do the same thing? When Jesus doesn't show up in our lives in the way that we want, in the timing we want, or do the things that we want, we begin to grow bitter. We begin to mock him. Maybe not openly with our mouths, but in our hearts. We wonder if he really is who he says he is why he won't prove himself to us, why he won't erase this problem or come through in the ways that we really think he should, provide that thing I've always most longed for. It seems that he is withholding something from us that we've earned or that we deserve or that we fought so hard for. And we grow bitter. We treat him with contempt. Our trust begins to evaporate. We begin to look outside of Jesus, to some other savior, some other thing, some other substance, some other person, some other job, some other possession, whatever it is to provide us with what we think we need and we so desperately want. Friends, we are so much like Herod. And Jesus in this story, think about it, he could have pulled the craziest miracles out of his hat that anyone had ever seen. It would have just blown Herod's mind. 
Jesus could have taught with an authority that would have just stunned Herod, answered any of his questions, but he doesn't. So why doesn't Jesus argue for his innocence? Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter or a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Let's move on to our next section. We're going to read verses 13 through 23. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I didn't find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Let's pause there for a moment. It was customary, it was tradition, that at this point in time um, in our story, the Jews are in Jerusalem, they're celebrating a festival, a holiday called Passover. And it was customary at this time for the Roman authorities to release to the Jewish people as a gift one man or, or woman who was, um, who was convicted of uh, the death penalty. And so Pilate is trying to get the people to receive Jesus as that one man to be released from the death penalty and go free. But we see the people saying, no, 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 no. We don't want Jesus released to us as a gift, this one man, Barabbas. So the people want Barabbas. Let's continue on verse 19. Release to us Barabbas, verse 19, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. And so we see our third group of people in our passage today, the mob, the mob. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, and this puts Pilate in a pickle. Pilate believes Jesus is innocent, but he's got this angry mob of Jewish religious leaders who are demanding his death. Remember, all of this is happening during the Jewish religious festival called Passover. So thousands and thousands of Jewish people from all over the globe, they've traveled to Jerusalem and they're celebrating. They're worshiping in the temple. They're making sacrifices. The whole reason why Pilate's probably even in Jerusalem at this time is to make sure that these thousands of Jews who've journeyed journeyed to the city stay in line, that they don't get outside of Roman control. And so In Pilate's mind, a Jewish revolution or a revolt or a riot is a real problem. So he's presented with a sticky situation. 
does he release a man who he knows to be innocent? Or does he placate an angry mob demanding the innocent man's death? Does he release Jesus or does he appease the mob and avoid a possible riot in the city? And we see that Pilate caves. He gives in to the demands of the mob. And guys, when we look at the mob in this story, we see the most unreasonable group of people in the entire passage. I just want to take a second and look at their actions throughout our passage today. Look, look with me at verse 2. They accuse Jesus of crimes that he never committed. They fabricate and they specially tailor their accusations to appeal to a Roman official like Pilate. Look, look at what they say in verse 2. They say, we found this man misleading our nation, okay, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, okay, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. A couple verses down, verse 5, they say of Jesus, he stirs up the people. Verse 10, they say, as he's being questioned and, and mocked by Herod, it says that the mob, the chief priests and scribes, they vehemently accuse him. Moving down, verse 18, they cry out, away with this man, release to us Barabbas. And then verse 21, crucify, crucify him. Verse 23 says they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Like what are these people's problem? Did they, it's like, did they wake up on the wrong side of the bed? What happened? What happened to make them so enraged, so set on murdering Jesus, who never did anything wrong, never did anything deserving of death? They should be lifting their voices in praise of Jesus, not crying out for his death. But friends, just like the mob, we have to understand that apart from the decisive, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, bringing our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, we too are enemies of God. We too are haters of Jesus. We too demand autonomy to not be ruled by anything, not be ruled by anything, let alone God, other than ourselves. Colossians 1.21 says that apart from Jesus, we are separated from God. We're hostile toward him in mind, doing evil deeds. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul, he quotes some of the Psalms, and he, he says that apart from Jesus, this is what he says about humanity, apart from Jesus, he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, no one does good, not even one. Has he made his point clear yet? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And doesn't it seem like Paul is writing specifically about the mob in our passage? Like it seems like Paul is legitimately writing a passage 
a descriptive statement about the mob in Luke 23. But friends, Paul wasn't writing to describe the mob in Luke 23. Paul was writing to describe you and me. If the mob seems crazy and out of line and ridiculous to us in the story, then we don't know and don't understand the evil in our own hearts apart from Jesus. We don't know, we don't understand who we are apart from Christ if the mob seems crazy to us. We too were enemies of God. We too were opposed to his rule and his reign in our lives. And apart from the Holy Spirit powerfully poured out into our hearts, bringing us to our senses, we would still be refusing him in our lives. We would still be demanding our own way apart from him. Friends, the scriptures are clear that apart from a powerful intervention of the Holy Spirit changing our heart and our lives, we too are the mob that cries out, crucify, crucify him. The scriptures are clear that if the roles were reversed and you were the one standing in the mob, you would have cried it out too. And what's wild is that as I'm reading this, is that Jesus doesn't just immediately shut these people up. Like if I had been Jesus in this scenario, like he could have just snapped his fingers and they all evaporate. He could have spoken one word and their throats are stopped. They can't speak another word. So why didn't Jesus argue for his innocence? Isaiah 53, 7 Again, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, but he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is brought to the slaughter or a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Let's move on. Let's close out with our last section of scripture, verses 24 through 26. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they had asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. So the last figure we see in our passage is the murderer, Barabbas. And let's, I just want to pause for a second. Let's think about the day this guy's having. Barabbas wakes up in the morning believing it's his last. In fact, he probably hasn't slept much He's, he knows that today's the day that he faces the brutal torture of a Roman cross. And we can picture just, oh man, the misery that he must be in. The absolute agony of body and mind and soul and spirit that he has to be going through. He's like trying to mentally prepare for what waits for him. And we can picture him sitting in a cell. He's, he's been... Who knows how long he's been there, but he's, he's bound with chains. And we can picture him just slumped over in, in misery, trying to just waiting for, for the moment that's coming for him. And we can picture he can hear the sound of the guards enter in and they're, they're walking towards the cell and he knows. He just knows the moment's come. We can hear, we can see the guards, they, they get to the cell and we can hear him turn the key in the lock and pull open the door. It has that, in my, my mind, it kind of has that, noise to it and they walk in and they just the guards just grab Barabbas they start to drag him 
outside. You can hear the chains just rolling along the floor as they're tearing him out. They drag him outside and they throw him onto the ground and we can picture Barabbas looking up and he sees this, this big crowd, this crowd of people and he's, he's sure, he's certain, these people have come to see me be executed. These people have come to see me be tortured. See, he knows he's guilty. He knows he's, he's guilty of insurrection. He's, he's probably tried to start some kind of riot in the city of Jerusalem in an attempt to overthrow the Roman rulership there. He's been caught for that. He's got blood on his hands. Everybody knows he's a murderer. Everybody knows it. And he knows, okay, this is the moment where I'm punished for my crimes. But we can picture, friends, the absolute shock it must have been for him when the Roman guards come to him, lift him to his feet, and begin to undo the bonds, the chains that are on him. Like, we can hear the chains falling to the floor and we can see the Roman guards kind of push him forward and say, you're free. Go. You're free. And we can see him kind of pause in shocked silence, like, what, what's going on? We can picture tears starting to form in his eyes we can picture joy start to take over his face and he's just openly weeping in front of all these people thinking, how could this be? I'm guilty. How can this be? I, everybody knows I'm a murderer. And we can picture him learning that the punishment that he deserved, that the cross that he earned was taken up by another that the righteous punishment that he deserved for his crimes was taken on by a righteous man who never demanded, who never argued for his own innocence. And we can picture the, the beams that were supposed to hold his body to be his place of suffering on the cross being taken up by a substitute. And friends, if you don't see it yet, you need to know we are Barabbas. We are the murderer who earned the righteous penalty of the cross. And not just the cross, but the eternal damnation of hell forever, separated from God. We are the guilty ones with no excuse and no hope. And Jesus is the one who goes to the cross that we deserve, who stands in as our substitute who takes the righteous penalty for our sin that we deserve in full. We are the ones who find ourselves by no effort, no earning of our own, with our shackles unbound, falling to the ground, being told to go free. So friends, to circle around to where I started, I want to ask one last time, why did Jesus not argue for his innocence? Friends, the answer is so that we can be declared innocent. Why didn't Jesus argue for his innocence? So that we can be declared innocent. Praise God that Jesus didn't argue for his own innocence. 
so that manipulators and mockers and the mob and murderers like you and me could be declared innocent. Praise God. Jesus didn't argue for his own innocence so that we could be declared innocent. 